We come this morning to Psalm 125. We are going through our sermon series in the Psalms of Ascent, this uh, mini songbook in the middle of the Bible, um, this playlist of sorts for travelers finding their way home. Um, so turn to Psalm 125. I've got a printed for the, you in the bulletin, or if you have your Bible with you, you can turn there or on your, uh, your phone. This is Psalm 125, God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. A song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, but to those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evil doers. Peace be on Israel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it we catch a glimpse of who you are because it is your revelation inspired by you to show us who you are and what you're about so that we might discover and see you and discover who we are and who we are in you and what we are to be about. So in these moments, Lord, show us the Lord Jesus and his glory. May our hearts be ravished by the beauty that we see here. Change us, God. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In eighth grade, I tried out for my middle school basketball team. Basketball is my favorite sport, and I had an okay jump shot for my age. I'm not trying to brag, but that was the kind of only good thing in my basketball arsenal. Um, but I wasn't the best athlete. I was at best like the middle of the road kid. Um, I was really short for my age, and so anytime I was playing basketball, if I got within the three-point line, it was a guaranteed block. Couldn't get a rebound to save my life. Could barely dribble well enough to not, like, kick it off my foot every time down the court. But I loved basketball. And so I decided to try it. And I tried my best. In my mind, I thought it was going to be like the movie Rudy. If you've ever seen Rudy or other sports movies, it's the little tough guy. Gets in there. He's going to try as hard as he's going to go, go, go. He's going to make the team. It's going to be his big thing. And so I went. I shot my shot. I did the drills. I did everything coach said. I gave it my all. And I waited with bated breath for him to print out the, the roster and tape it on the boys' locker room wall. And I remember running into the gym, and I ran up, and I was waiting for my movie moment. And I go through the list, and my name's not there. I look through the list, and my name's not there. I hadn't made the team. I tried really hard. I wanted it, but I just didn't have what it took. I didn't have what coach was looking for. You know, I mentioned that because I think sometimes we can think of our relationship with God like he's a basketball coach in a sense. And that our lives are a tryout. That he's a coach and he's looking for the varsity squad. He has a limited number of spots on his team of love that's going to receive his love and his attention. And so what we got to do is we've got to make this varsity team. We've got to show up. We've got to do the drills. We've got to prove ourselves that we really earn it. That we're really worthy of God showing us love. And I think whether we realize it or not, that's going on in our hearts. We might not say it that way. We might not say coach God. We might not think of it that way. But we think of him as a coach with a team with a limited number of spots, limited amount of love to go around. And if we want to get some of that love of God, we've got to prove that it belongs and so I think we respond to that in a couple of ways. Some of us see that and we despair. 
We say, well, I, you don't know my past, um, but I do. And truth be told, I can't make this team. It's too late for me. I can't make this team. I don't have it in me. I'll only be a disappointment. And so what we do is we disengage. We turn away from God. We shrug our shoulders. And we go look for whatever small pleasures or distractions we can find in life. Because we're living out in this deep sense of unworthiness. That we can't be loved by God. That His love is fundamentally incapable of overcoming my sin and my weakness. Or, on the other hand, we hear this, and this is what I did in my little part. We think, well, God's got a varsity team. And you've got to make it by being super religious. I can do that. I'm going to start memorizing my Bible verses. I'm going to have my quiet time every morning. What do, what do the super religious varsity people do? They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't cuss. Okay, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to cuss. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to prove that I belong on this team. We buckle down. We reach for our bootstraps to pull ourselves up. And we put our head down and barrel through, barrel through. But you know what? That super religious mindset, it comes from the same deep sinned sense of unworthiness as the people who disengage and it suffers from the same fundamental flaw. It sees God as coach. Who we need to prove that we deserve a place on his team. God as coach, we need to prove that we deserve his love. Whether you're somebody who thinks the first way, you tend to disengage because it's impossible to hit too high of a hill to climb. Or you're a second person who thinks you can jump high enough to reach for God. I have good news this morning. And it's this. God has never told you to call him coach. God has never told you to call him coach. He's told you to call him father. We prayed that already this morning. God has never invited us to call him coach. He is not a basketball coach trying to form a perfect team. He is not waiting for you to prove yourself to give you love. He's not standing and waiting for us to show him that we are good enough. He's not. No, he's a God that actually knows all things. And that's fearful in a sense because that means he knows the depth of our sin and the depth of our problem, the depth of our selfishness, better than we do. He knows all those unspoken thoughts we've ever had. He knows them better than we do. He knows all the things we've done. He knows it, but he has still sought us out in Jesus. He is not the basketball coach waiting for us to prove ourselves. He truly sees us. He truly knows us, and he truly loves us. And he loves us not because we've earned it. He loves us because he loves us. And we are lovely in him because we are loved, not because we've proven ourselves to be loved. His love set on us is what makes us lovely. So I'm going to uh, approach that because that's the essence, I think, uh, that one of the things that's going on in the center of this song, and I'm going to break it up into a couple of different sections. The first one's this. Our confidence is in the Lord. Our confidence is in the Lord. That, in a sentence, is what this psalm is about. It's a reminder that for God's people, their confidence is not in themselves, by themselves. Their confidence is in the Lord. Verse 1, look at it. It tells us that those who trust in the Lord cannot be, what, shaken. To the point that the songwriter, he describes God's people as those unable to be shaken, they're like Mount Zion. What's going on here is the songwriter is thinking of the absolute strongest possible thing he can imagine. What's the most strong and secure and wonderful thing in the whole world? 
or for him it's Mount Zion. Now Mount Zion, it was a secondary name for Jerusalem. When you read in the Old Testament, they use the word Mount Zion. It's a different name for Jerusalem, but not just a different name. It's a name that points to a particular thing. Jerusalem is a city like any other city. It's got houses, it's got buildings, it's just like any other city. But when the Old Testament calls it Mount Zion, it's pointing to the fact that this was the place uh, that during the Old Testament, before the time of Jesus, this was the place that God had marked out basically as headquarters for his promise. This is the place from which the light of God's promise is going to shine out to the whole world. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's not going to end in Jerusalem, but it's going to start there. Mount Zion is the place where God had symbolically put his house. That's what the temple was. It's God saying, you dwell in houses, I'm going to dwell in your midst in a house too. And you, when you are beat down, when you are despondent, when life has torn you to pieces, and you need to hear that God has love for you, you can go to Jerusalem. Of all the places in the world, if you need to know it, if you look around and you see nothing but darkness and you need light, you can go to Jerusalem. That's where the burning torch of God's promise continues to burn. Right there, Mount Zion. So the songwriter is saying that as secure as that promise that God has made, that he is going to renew all things, that he is going to dwell with his people, they are going to be his people, and he be their God. This repeated promise through the Old Testament that gives Mount Zion, Jerusalem, its essence, its character. He's saying that those who trust in the Lord are as secure as God's promise. If God's promise can't be broken, then his people cannot fall apart. Those who trust in the Lord cannot be shaken. Why? Because they're super strong? Is that what it says? That they can't be shaken and they're like Mount Zion because they got the big muscles? <laughs> no. It says because the Lord surrounds them. The Lord surrounds us. Verse 2, God is described as surrounding his people like a mountain range. Now, if you go to Jerusalem, you can actually look at it on like a, a, a map. Jerusalem is a mountain, or is a city on a mountain, and it's surrounded by mountains. And what that meant for Jerusalem is it was protected from severe weather. So in that part of the world, severe east winds come through and can kind of tear through everything. But the fact that there were mountains on the side of Jerusalem, it meant the winds didn't hit that as badly. It also meant it was protected in a military sense. And so invading armies... Uh, they couldn't get to Jerusalem very easily. It was a very hard city to besiege and invade. Um, it was a protected city. And so the image that the songwriter is reaching for is these mountains surround Jerusalem. It keeps the severe weather from being as severe. It keeps the city from being invaded. And saying God surrounds his people just like that. Describing God this way points to his permanency. That he is strong. That he cannot be moved. That he is the protection of his people. But I think there's some danger. If you've ever thought about God like a rock. A rock is a cold thing, right? It's a hard thing. You don't lay down on it. You don't rest on a rock. Maybe the thing that you build on a rock. But there's some danger there. When we start speaking just with God as just like a mountain or a rock. That he's cold, he's impersonal. He's strong, but we can't get to know him. I actually think that's why the Bible uses a bunch of different images for God. In fact, this same point of God surrounding his people and protecting his people. In other, in other Psalms, it describes God like a, like a mother hen who wraps her babies in her uh, wings to protect them. 
But all these images point to the same thing, that God surrounds his people, that he protects his people, that he's strong like a rock, and he's tender like a mother hen, and everything in between. And he is our confidence. That's our confidence. Not that we'll be strong enough on our own, not that we will be strong, but that God will be. And our trust, when we talk about faith, that's what our faith is. It's us leaning into this truth. That's why I often say the point of our faith is not how strong we believe. The point of our faith is the object of our faith. You know, if I sat down in a chair, it doesn't matter how much I believe that that chair is going to hold me up. If it's a busted chair, I'm going to hit the ground. No matter what I believe that chair is going to do. When you sit down, the thing that really matters is the integrity of the chair. Is it well fit? Is the chair going to fall apart? It's the same thing with God. Except for, um, don't sit on God. It's just an image, but he's not a chair. But it's the same thing with our faith. The point is not how uh, strongly we believe. The point is the object of our faith. And that's our confidence. The Lord. Now it's important for us to remember that, and I am making this point and hammering it home because it's possible when we get later in this psalm to verses like verses four and five, where it turns into a prayer for God to do good to those who are good and to those who are upright in heart. But to those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish them to evildoers. If we do not remember that the Lord is our confidence, that it's the Lord that establishes this people, if we don't remember that it's a love that seeks us out without us having to prove that we deserve it, we're going to read those verses with a mistaken idea of what it means to be good and upright in heart. Because we're going to read these verses, or at least I did, in my many times of reading this uh, psalm, and read good and upright of heart as perfect and without any weakness. That's not what it means to be good. Not for human beings in this world. But who are good? Who are those who are upright in heart? Those who are perfect and without any, any weakness? No. The good and the upright of heart are those who trust in the Lord. It's already said that. Those who trust in the Lord are those who can't be shaken. Those who trust in the Lord are those who are forgiven. We've walked through and we've emphasized. They're those who have been forgiven of their sins. Those who are being transformed by His grace, not by their own efforts. Those who, in the words of 2 Corinthians 2, which we read earlier, have been taken captive by the love of God. You know, we speak about the gospel being good news for the lost and found in the sense that we get a new record before God. That God gives us credit. He imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. That means when God looks at us, we have received the credit for all the righteous things that Jesus ever did. That's the good news of a new record. It's not we didn't earn it. We receive it by faith. It's the good news of a new heart. That God is renewing us. But who's renewing us? Not ourselves. It's God and His grace working upon our hearts to give us new hearts. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's why our confidence is in the Lord. This means that you can give up on trying to make yourself good. I don't know if that's a goal you've ever had in your life. That you know, I think we do that every uh, New Year's resolution time. I'm going to make myself good. I'm going to do these one, two, three things to make myself good, to make myself worthy of something. But God invites us to give up on that. It doesn't work that way. You can give up on ideas of trying to prove yourself to God. You don't need to. You don't need to. 
doesn't work that way. The way it works, we trust ourselves to God. And we find when we trust ourselves to Him, He gives us everything we need. He gives us, He provides what He requires. There's an old hymn that says that. All that He requires, He provides. That's what He does in Jesus. And as we find everything we need in Him and drawing on Him, we discover that He is making us good. That it's Him by His grace who pursues us. And we are called out from our selfishness by His goodness. Not from Him saying, here's the drill, prove you belong on the team. It's Him saying, I love you. I love you, period. And that becomes the springboard. That becomes the foundation of a new life. And that brings me to my second section here. Jesus is our security. Jesus is our security. That's only hinted at in this psalm. It's coming. This psalm was written hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. But with the arrival of Jesus, we get a light shined on the glory of what God does for those who come to Him by faith. In Jesus, God has begun to do what He says He's going to do in verse 3 in this psalm. Remove the scepter of the wicked. The picture here is an evil king ruling over people and using people. Now, that's a tale as old as human history itself. We see it in Scripture. It goes all the way back to Exodus. Remember, we spent the first half of this year in Exodus. And the story is of a king, a pharaoh, who has set himself up as a god in this world, who has used people and abused them. But that's a repeated thing in the Old Testament. We see it with later uh, the kingdom of Assyria. We see it in the kingdom of Babylon. And sadly... The Old Testament ends by us seeing it in the kingdom of Israel itself, God's people. Even the kings of God's people have turned these evil kings that use and oppress. And by the time Jesus is born, that hope that I talked about that burned at the center of Israel's life, that burned there in Jerusalem with God's promise, that hope had dwindled to almost nothing. Almost nothing. It was, it was still carried, I think, in the faith of ordinary Israelites. But in the halls of power, the people who ruled over God's people, the scepter of the wicked reigned. Wickedness. And that in so many ways, the kingdom of darkness, uh, it, it, it covers our world like a blanket. And that's been true since the very beginning of humanity. We can see it in Genesis 3. The story of Adam and Eve and their rebellion, their rejection of God. The sin of Adam, our first father. And that tale of human history spilled out from him. Violence, futility, a seeking to make a name for our own selves and win our own security and be our own confidence. All that forms the structure of our world. It's sin giving birth to sin over and over. And so what we discover is that God has to intervene to bring good to his people. Humanity, humanity is set adrift and destined for destruction in Adam. But there's a reason why the New Testament, Romans 5 and other places, calls Jesus the second Adam. He takes this idea of Adam being the, 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 the first human who rebelled and his sin spilling out and just poisoning everything. And he says, just like Adam failed. And the reverberations of that is human history and all its bloodiness and terribleness. That in Jesus, a second Adam, a new Adam, one that abounds with life. If death comes from Adam, life comes from Christ. 
One that abounds in hope. As our new beginning, the new head of humanity, Jesus is the guarantor and the secure of our bright tomorrow. All that God has for us will come to us because Jesus will bring it to us. All that God has for us will come to us because Jesus will bring it to us. And so we see when Jesus comes into this world, he comes in and he speaks about it himself. He says he arrives in this world and he binds the strong man to plunder his house. The idea here is that this, uh, this world is so characterized by the kingdom of darkness that Jesus comes and he binds the power of Satan so that Jesus can run in and rescue from the household of Satan people that have been taken. It's that picture of captives. It's an image that Jesus uses to describe what he is doing. And as he plunders the, the false kingdom of Satan... He takes us captives, but as I said earlier, it's not captives in chains to him. It's those of us who have been made captives to his love. We've seen our chains broken, and we have been set free by him. And now we are no longer those who find ourselves trapped in darkness with no hope. He will rescue us from our sin. He'll cleanse us to the uttermost. He'll bring us healing. For those of us who flee to him, we will find freedom. But those who persist in weakness... I mean, wickedness, he will bring justice. In the words of this psalm, he will do right. He is our security. In the word of this psalm, he is our peace. Jesus is our peace. That's the meaning of the last verse of this psalm. The last thing it does is pronounce a blessing. Notice it says, peace be on Israel. It's a fitting conclusion to this song. After walking through the truth that God is our confidence, after we gain the understanding on the other side of Jesus of all this means, the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ given to us, the working of God's Spirit to call us to the life, we are assured in this last verse that the peace of God is ours. Peace be to Israel. Peace be to God's people. That's what's pronounced upon us in Jesus Christ. That's why so many of the letters of the New Testament, look at the first verse of so many of the letters of the New Testament, it says grace and peace to you. It's more than just a salutation. It says like, dear Tim, or hey, hope this email finds you well. That's not what it, it Grace and peace to you. It's a profound thing. That's what Jesus has won for us. That can be pronounced upon us, and we can trust that. That God has brought us his peace. That's what God has pronounced. And he'll bring it about. He'll do it. Not us. It's not us earning this peace. It's us taking this gift that he gives us. And he invites us into this peace. He invites us to be peacemakers in this world. But the peace that we make, it draws upon the peace that he has won. It's not one we create. You know, I think we can often get the idea that, uh, in fact, I've, I've seen this. He died for me, so I live for him. He died for me, so I live for him. But what that can almost mean like, he did this really good thing. Now I'm going to do this really good thing. Almost like we're getting a competition. I'm going to one-up Jesus when he's done. No, we never move on from the reality of his grace. Because when we learn of who he is, what he's accomplished for us, that becomes, again, the bedrock. That becomes the foundation, the springboard for the rest of everything else. And so we are awash with his grace. And so insofar as we follow God and being peacemakers, the peace that we've received 
that we turn around and give, we're never drawing out from ourselves peace and creating it ourselves. We are drawing out from this reservoir of grace that's been given to us that cannot run out. You know, when I was a kid, my dad used to take me along with him to do carpentry work. I'm not a good carpenter at all. It doesn't come natural to me a, a, a bit. Um, and he was a carpenter. He would sometimes do jobs for friends that, that, that were flipping properties, fixing up houses, things like that. And I, he could have done it easier by himself. Honestly, that's not too far off from what it means for us to follow Jesus and bring love into this world. Speaking about being a, a peacemaker. He brings us spiritual life. He equips us to following him, but he doesn't need us there. He wants us there. We get invited to the work, and he does all the work, and we get the credit, in a sense. Right alongside him. He plans it out. He brings everything that's needed for the job. He ensures that it's done right. But we're right there along all the way. And he doesn't begrudge our presence. As we still characterized by darkness, we're going to see Jesus expose injustice. And he handles it sometimes in mysterious ways. And he may even work through us to do it, to work peace, to speak truth, to proclaim his grace. He'll make his kingdom come as we pray, and his will be done in this place as it is in heaven. And he may work through us to do it. He may also work in spite of us. It's not a carrot and stick thing. It's not God holding out the carrot and hitting us with the stick to keep going. Not at all. Jesus will bring it to us. He is our confidence, and he is our security. In closing, I spoke at the beginning of seeing God like a coach. Who's running us through drills. Who's trying to see if we've got what it takes to make the team. And we can either you know, disengage and turn away from that in despair. Because I, I've already messed up. I, there's no way I could do it. Or we could uh, dive in on trying to be really religious and make the squad. But again, both of those come from a deep-seated sense of unworthiness. That I can't be loved by God. This morning for both of those... Or maybe you're a mixture of those. There's no freedom. Only different kinds of bondage. Both of those are eat up with shame. But this morning, Jesus gives us permission to give up this way of thinking. He gives us permission to stop thinking of God like a coach that is waiting for us to prove ourselves. You may not say it with your mouth, but how often in your heart do you think of God that way? Do you think of yourself that way? We have permission this morning, not just from me, but from Jesus, to stop calling God coach, call him father, call him father, to walk and dance and live in the knowledge, not the possibility, in the knowledge that in him is our confidence, in him is, is our security. We are God's children, loved, held. Never let go. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this. Because I think you could do anything you wanted. You could tell us to call you coach. You could set the rules and know that every single one of us will fall short in the midst of the drills. You could pick your varsity team and it be Jesus. And that's it. But you don't. 
We don't. You invite us to call you Father. And through Jesus, you make a, a way for us to be reconciled to you. You remove every barrier that stands between us and you to ensure that when the dust settles, when uh, our struggle with sin is long over, when all the sins are forgiven and dealt with, what remains for us is your love. So embolden us on that. Lord, give us insight into our own hearts and all the places that we are uh, prone to approach you and to think about you and about ourselves as uh, in this like coach relationship. Let us know that we are secure, not because we've earned it, but because of you. That you are our confidence, you are our strength, and Lord, because of that, you are our song. Seal this to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.